Please stand with me as we read God's word. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences, excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. Be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we open your word, uh, we pray that we would meet you. We pray that we would hear you. We pray that we would see you, Lord. But we know for that to happen, your spirit uh, needs to give us those eyes to see and ears to hear. We need your spirit to give us hearts that are ready to be changed by the truth of your gospel and the hope that we have in you. And so I pray that that's what would happen this morning as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, with the presidential primaries in uh, full and somewhat nauseating uh, swing, uh, it's no surprise to see the subject of immigration as a regular talking point again. What do we do with the whole immigration problem in America and so on? What is surprising is how short some of our memories are, as displayed in the dismissive and sometimes downright ugly way we speak of immigrants. Uh, It's easy to forget that but for a handful of people, we are a country of immigrants. Families fleeing hardship, sometimes for religious persecution or political uh, oppression, uh, sometimes just looking for a fresh start, a way to prosper in life, or families whose ancestors were brought to this country against their will to be sold and traded as property. We are, but for our native friends, a country of immigrants. And for some of us here, that's not that distant of a memory. But when someone takes up uh, residence in a country that is not their place of origin, when someone immigrates to a new land away from their country of origin, one of the questions that they will be forced to address sooner or later is what to do about the strangeness factor. When you come to a new country speaking a different language, eating different foods, wearing different clothes, with different social and family customs, you look strange to the people around you, and they look pretty strange to you. You're reminded daily that this is not your home. You have this sense of being a stranger, an alien, an exile. How are you going to handle the strangeness factor? Every immigrant people has to wrestle with that question. And sociologists have noticed three general patterns uh, for immigrant groups. Some immigrants will wall themselves up from the larger culture, reenacting simply the ways and mores of the old country. So you think of the proverbial uh, Chinatown or Little Italy in pretty much every major city in America. You uh, the, the language, the food, the culture is by and large a transplant from the homeland. 
You wouldn't even necessarily know that you're in a different country apart from the weather or your GPS or something like that. So that's one reaction. A second uh, reaction is that some immigrants can simply assimilate into the larger society so that there's no longer anything distinctive about them at all. A few probably aim for that initially, but many will experience it within a few generations. My great-great-grandparents came over from Holland speaking Dutch. My grandparents spoke Dutch at home when they didn't want the kids to know what they were talking about. My dad understood that Dutch, but he couldn't speak it. And I don't know a single word. You wouldn't know anything about my Dutch heritage if I hadn't just told you right now that I have a Dutch heritage. But between those two extremes, walling oneself off, and total assimilation, some immigrant communities combine a drive for freedom and self-determination, the reason they came in the first place, with a strong social network of fellow immigrants from the same country. So these immigrants navigate their new country with the best aspects of both their old and their new countries, individual drive, community connection. They retain a sense of the strangeness, but they don't forsake, they retain a sense of their strangeness in that they don't forsake their homeland or their ethnic identity, but they're also fully engaged with life in their new home. If you think about that dynamic of being an immigrant, a stranger, there is a reason that the Apostle Peter addresses this letter to the church as strangers and aliens and exiles. Verse 1, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion. And it's not primarily because the church he was writing to were geopolitical exiles, though they may have been. It's because strangers and exiles is one of the best metaphors to describe our identity and experience as followers of Christ in a fallen world. There's a strangeness that comes from the fact that this is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven, as Paul tells us. As Peter says in chapter 1, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is not our home. And so Steve Timmis and Tim Chester explain that Christians are not strangers because they've moved from their homeland to a new country. They are exiles because their identity has so radically changed that they are no longer at home in their country of birth. That's the Christian experience. And this has been intensified for those who see themselves on the conservative side of Christianity in recent decades. We feel our strangeness in ways that previous generations didn't. For most of the country's history, it was culturally and socially advantageous to kind of align oneself with, with Christianity, to associate with the church, to identify with it, even if you didn't actually believe it. 
If you were going to get elected for office, you better be able to answer the question, what church do you go to? And so on. And this kind of name-only Christianity provided the foundation for what was really the dominant moral vision of our country for decades, the so-called moral majority or family values, the leave-it-to-beaver kind of world. Being a Christian was a lot easier in those days. Though, if we're honest, what often passed as Christianity was little more than a baptized version of the American dream with Jesus as kind of the means to the end of my personal fulfillment or national pride. But that day is gone. The the world, the culture around us has changed. And so exercising one's Christian faith in the public square is no longer an asset. It is a liability. Even the religious liberties that once kind of protected that free exercise, we've watched be challenged and begin to slowly erode over the last few years. And so to identify with historic, orthodox Christianity in public is to risk being labeled or marginalized as a fundamentalist, bigoted, narrow-minded, on the wrong side of history. Christianity, we're told, is now outdated. It's not just outdated, though. It's actually wrong-headed and toxic. And so progressives are no longer willing to settle for mere tolerance and and permission. They actually claim the moral high ground now. They have the moral position to kind of tell us that Christianity is not good for the world. And so that if it wants any place in the future, then it needs to get about the business of updating itself and changing. Otherwise, it won't be around much longer. This is the message we hear. So what do we do with that? What do we do in face of such a a drastically changing culture in just such a few years? How do we handle the strangeness factor, in other words? Do we wall ourselves off and just kind of retreat from the public square, wringing our hands in kind of a self-pitying anxiety, waving our fists in anger, standing in smug condemnation over the hell-bound culture around us? Or do we assimilate, reevaluate our readings of Scripture, revise our doctrine wherever it clashes with the prevailing cultural norms? Do we assimilate? Or is there a way forward between these two extremes? A way that embraces the strangeness of our identity while being fully engaged with the world that we live in? Can we engage the culture in a meaningful way without compromising the gospel, which is the very unique thing we have to add and bring to that culture. These are the kinds of questions we're going to be exploring over the next few weeks as we enter into the next section of our series in the gospel for all of life. Um, Our normal practice at Westgate is to preach through books of the Bible, but this year we've been taking a look at how the good news of Jesus, what Christ has done for us on the cross, how that not only is how we begin a relationship with God, it's also something that changes everything about our relationship with God and helps us grow in every way. And we've looked at that. If you kind of look at the banners on the front of your worship folder, 
We've looked at it with respect to our own personal lives and the church and home and school and work. And now we're coming to uh, the little graphic there, which is the public square, the city. And what difference does the gospel make for our public engagement on cultural topics? Things that the stuff that's trending on your Facebook page. What do I think about that? How does the gospel speak to that? And this morning what we're going to do is hopefully kind of build a general framework for, for that from First Peter. And then over the next few weeks, we'll take a look at specific topics within that. Uh, we'll look at entertainment. How does the gospel speak to our entertainment? How many hours a week do we spend watching Netflix and things like that? Do we think about how the good news of Jesus ought to shape that? How it speaks to that? Or social justice? Or sensitive topics like homosexuality and abortion. What does the gospel say to these things? So that's where we're going over the next few weeks. But this morning, kind of a general framework. And one of the most helpful books I've found on this subject is a book called Onward by Russell Moore, the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And uh, he frames... Our basic call, which I think is a good summary of our passage this morning, like this. He says, our call is to an engaged alienation. Strangeness, but engagement. An engaged alienation. A Christianity that preserves the distinctiveness of our gospel while not retreating from our callings as neighbors and friends and citizens. That, I think, is where 1 Peter is taking us in, in chapter 2, verses 9. So if, you haven't, if you're not still there, go ahead and turn there with me. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12. How do we engage our culture in a meaningful way without compromising the gospel? First, we need to remember our unique identity. Remember your unique identity. We are the redeemed people of a holy God. So verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. The most foundational question that we need to ask in discerning how do we live in a world that is, live in this world that surrounds us, the most foundational question is one of identity. Who are we? Who we are tells us how we should live. How we answer that question, who we are, tells us how we should be living. If you are a Cuban living in America, but you identify primarily as a Cuban, that will shape the way that you conduct yourself during your time in America. And the same is true of our Christian identity, of our identity in Christ. If I am first and foremost a Christian who happens to live in America... Well, then my Christian identity will tell me how to conduct myself during what Peter calls our time of exile, this meantime between the cross and the new creation. And Peter describes our identity here in the language of the Old Testament. I don't know if you kind of noticed if there was a familiarity to the words he was using to to describe us, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation people for his own possession. Those are the ways that God described his covenant people Israel in books like Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And since Jesus is the climax of Israel's story and the fulfillment of all God's promises to 
to ancient Israel. Through faith in Christ, we all, whether Jew or Gentile, are written into that ancient story. And we find ourselves sharing in this ancient and special identity as God's redeemed people. We become part of the story. One of the biggest problems in trying to to figure out how do I live as a Christian now in the world we inhabit today, one of the biggest problems in trying to figure that out is that so often we think that the story begins and ends with me personally. We have a very individualized and sometimes privatized and therefore often quite compartmentalized identity. So, so who I am with respect to my relationship to Christ doesn't necessarily have anything to do with these other parts of my life. We position ourselves over Christianity then as the arbiter and evaluator of what is true and useful about the faith. And so we think of, of, of Christianity. Our operating question is, is not so much how do I fit into Christianity, but how does Christianity fit into me? My story, how do I fit Christianity into that? This is the wrong question. This is the wrong question. This is one of the reasons there's so much confusion on this subject. To understand how to live faithfully in a fallen world, we need to see ourselves as part of the rich, ancient story of God's plan to restore his fallen world and redeem a people for himself. A story that doesn't begin with us and doesn't end with us and is not up to us to rewrite at convenient places along the way. It begins and ends with God. He's the author. He's the goal. His presence, his purposes, his glory, his renown. This is his story because this is his world. He's the one who has the power to create it, the authority to rule it, and the wisdom to know where it should be going. And he writes us into this story not because he needs us or not because we deserve it, but only by sheer grace. If you look at the very next verse, look again at verses 9 and 10. This is the God who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He writes us into his story because he loves us, because he has mercy and grace on us. And that mercy comes through the blood of Christ. Peter tells us in chapter 1 that we have been, quote, ransomed. We've been bought, purchased from the feudal ways that inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's what God was willing to spend on you to redeem you to himself. The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Verse 23, we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Salvation is God's work, and we are joyful and humble recipients. And that's our unique identity. We are the redeemed people of a holy God. If we don't begin 
whatever questions we're wrestling with about how do I live, what do I think, what do I say, with that identity, that's who I am, we will be starting on the wrong foot and so easily end up walking in the wrong direction. We have to understand who we are in Christ. God's redeemed people. And when we see that, we realize that makes us strangers here on earth. We're not Americans first. We belong to another kingdom. Our hope is not in Hollywood or Washington, D.C. or New York City. It's not in Boston or Cambridge or even Mayberry. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so Peter says in in chapter 2, verse 11, that he urges us, as sojourners and exiles to walk with God, to abstain from passions that war against us. But we, we obey God not as fully assimilated into the culture, nor as people walled off into a ghetto, as strangers and aliens. If Christianity is to be any blessing or make any contribution to the world around us, We have to keep it strange. Sin really is sinful. That's a strange message today. It really is sinful because God really is holy. But grace really is sufficient because Christ's blood really was enough. That's a strange message too. And we need both of them. And so we need to remember our unique identity. But then second, we need, if we're going to be faithful Citizens of heaven in this fallen world, we need second to proclaim our unparalleled message. We have a unique identity. We have an unparalleled message as well. The excellencies of our redeeming God. Verse 9 again. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We have a message that the world desperately needs to hear. That sounds kind of presumptuous and arrogant, but it's not a message of how great we are. That would be presumptuous and arrogant. It's a message of how excellent God is. And that message is unparalleled. There is nothing like it. There's no other news that is so good because there's no other news that is so true and makes such coherent and comprehensive sense of the world we live in. Nothing but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Science does a great job of telling us what is, but it cannot tell us what should be or where we all came from in the first place. It can't answer those questions. Every other philosophy or religious worldview either lacks an adequate foundation for justice to call evil what it is and bring it to rights or a viable foundation for mercy, a way to include evil people without compromising justice. They lack one or the other. No other message is able to bring those two together. Only the gospel of Jesus gives us the categories for a cohesive picture of where we come from, what life should look like, why it doesn't work the way it's supposed to, and what can be done about it. 
Only the gospel is able to resonate with the discontent we feel in our hearts over this life that doesn't often work the way it's supposed to, while at the same time satisfying those longings. There's no other message that allows us to be brutally honest about how messed up the world is and how messed up we are within it. Because there's no other message that is hopeful enough or comprehensive enough to take everything that's messed up in this world and bring it together in a beautiful solution that actually deals with the problem. Only the gospel of Jesus, only Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again, can deal with that. We have an unparalleled message. But that's the very message we are told we must abandon or update if the church is going to survive to the next generation. Certain sins can no longer be considered sinful. Hell, certainly off the table. That's embarrassing. Even the notion that that God would send his son to pay the penalty for, for sins he didn't commit has been described to some as divine child abuse. Even the cross itself is written off as offensive. This is a strange religion. But as Russell Moore reminds us, only a strange gospel can differentiate itself from the worlds that we construct. But the strange, freakish, foolish old gospel is what God uses to save people and resurrect churches. And of course, the the irony, as we talked about last week, is that if in our attempt to reach the world, we simply become like the world, we have nothing left to give them. We've lost our unique contribution. We've lost our salt, our flavor. In our changing world, we must hold fast to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. As smart as we think that we are, we cannot improve upon what God has decreed. But this message, this unparalleled message, it's not just for us. We can't lose the distinctiveness of the gospel through an unfettered assimilation, but neither can we risk walling ourselves off from the surrounding world and just kind of retreating from the public square in kind of a self-protection, lobbing our little hand grenades of condemnation over the wall every now and then, pining for the glory days of the the Christian-ish world where it was easier to be a Christian. Moral virtue that was often empty of real Christian faith. But we can't forget, again, citing more here, Mayberry leads to hell just as surely as Gomorrah does. Christianity didn't come from Mayberry in the first place, but from a Roman Empire hostile to the core to the idea of a crucified and resurrected Messiah. We've been on the wrong side of history since Rome, and it was enough to turn the world upside down. So we're called not to assimilate entirely and not to wall ourselves off. We are called to an engaged alienation, to to engage the world as strangers with our unique identity and unparalleled message. Look at verse 12. Look at the way Peter describes how we ought to keep our conduct. It says we are to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. We are to do life in the presence of non-believers in the world around us. 
The church may not have a moral majority anymore. We are now, as Moore puts it, a prophetic minority, which is where we probably should have been all along. And so Peter goes on to tell us, what's it going to take to remain faithful to that gospel, to that prophetic message, while engaging a culture that's often opposed to Christ? And he gives us two virtues in verses 11 and 12. Unpolluted desires and unassailable conduct. Unpolluted desires and unassailable conduct. So first, unpolluted desires. Verse 11. Look at that again with me. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The reality is that if, if we're to have any credibility or effectiveness in bearing witness to the gospel, we must first apply that gospel message to our own hearts. We need it just as much as everybody else. And if we're not applying it to our own hearts and our lives aren't beginning to kind of take on the aroma of Christ more and more, there's a hollowness that comes with our confession. We need to recognize that there is a war raging in our hearts. There's a battle between the spirit and the flesh, and it's playing itself out on the battleground of desire. What do we want? What do we long for? What are we looking for? Our flesh wages war, trying to entice us with empty promises and the fleeting pleasures of this world, wooing us to desert our post as as uh, ambassadors of Christ in this fallen world, to desert that post and betray our king. We've seen the kind of damage that it can do when someone public about their faith is caught in a scandal. It's one of the enemy's most effective strategies. So there's a war. But the solution to that war is believing for ourselves the very message we're called to proclaim to others. Believing and applying the gospel of Jesus Christ. We fight desire with desire, passions for Christ against the passions of this world. We need what Thomas Chalmers famously described as the expulsive power of a new affection. So an affection for Christ that's so big and so satisfying that it expels any weaker desires for lesser things. And that comes by feeding on the gospel by clothing ourselves in the gospel, by fellowshipping in the gospel, embracing our strange heritage and making it a central part of our lives. Peter says in chapter 4, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of his time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God, passions for Christ. And when we do that, it makes us even weirder than we already were. Peter continues, For the time is past that suffices for doing what the Gentiles, what the non-believers want to do, living in sensuality and passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. It doesn't make sense. 
We're having so much fun over here. Why wouldn't you come do this? And they malign you. They ridicule you because you're so strange. But they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. Don't be deceived. Sin really is sinful. It really is. And don't settle for lesser things. Grace really is sufficient. And when we see Christ for who he is and all of his beauty and excellence, our passions will be stoked. And utter, and we will be utterly unwilling to settle for anything less when we truly see Christ in his beauty and his glory. We need unpolluted desires. The second is unassailable conduct, a conduct that can't be slandered. Verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As representatives of God's kingdom, we are called to live lives of service and love that are above reproach. The world loves nothing more than to catch a self-proclaimed Christian being inconsistent and hypocritical. And the reality is we give them plenty to work with. But as representatives of Christ, we need to learn to prioritize holiness again. We need to learn to prioritize holiness again. Not in the self-righteous piety, you know, the, the I'm better than you kind of thing. Or, wow, God, look at me. Look at how much I'm doing for you. Aren't I special? Not that kind of hollow, superficial holiness, but a a God-enthralled, grace-fueled, Christ-reflecting love. It's what we need to cultivate and prioritize. We need to remember that one of the most powerful witnesses that we have is simply loving our neighbors even when they act like enemies. Are we praying for them? Are we praying for them? Are we serving them sacrificially, not as a project, but as a person? And when we find ourselves engaging in sticky cultural topics, uh, is our engagement guided and shaped by the golden rule to do unto others as we would have them do unto us? You know, we all know how frustrating it is how frustrating it is uh, to see you know, some news article on Twitter or Facebook that misrepresents Christianity. It's like, how dare they? You know, we get all in a fury. But how often when we're engaging uh, opposite viewpoints, do we do the same? Misrepresent. Do we seek to understand first and then engage? Or do we willfully misrepresent in order to score points? Do we conduct our lives in such a way, both our works and our words, that any slander that may assail us, that it won't actually be able to stick in the end? That at the end of the day, when all is said and done, the only thing they can really accuse us of is loving Jesus. Is that the way that we conduct ourselves Peter says in in chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure it? Big deal. But if when you do good and suffer and you endure it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. We will be assailed and accused. We're strangers and people are going to point out our strangeness. Peter says that in the very next verse there in chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. As winsome and nuanced as we might try to be, and we should try and be winsome and nuanced. We shouldn't be belligerent or angry or jerky. We should be winsome and nuanced. But but as much as we might try to do that, people will still look for ways to accuse us and take offense. For example, when evangelicals adopt children, the the secularist left accuses them of stealing children for evangelism. I've seen some articles on that one recently. But if, you do, if we don't adopt, the same voices accuse us of caring for fetuses without being willing to provide homes for, quote, unwanted children afterwards. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Just this week, uh, for pointing out the rather obvious fact that uh, far from promoting women's health, abortion actually involves the dismemberment of women in the womb. I was called on Twitter an ignorant fool, a bigot, a woman hater, a gay hater, and someone offered to sterilize me to ensure that my stupidity wouldn't be replicated. It was a good week. In a world that is scandalized by Christ's claim that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him, his followers will find themselves maligned, reviled, accused of being on the wrong side of history. But that's just it. We've been given a glimpse into where history is going. We know that our Savior will return, that the day of visitation will come, that he will restore this fallen world once and for all, and that when he comes, he will judge the living and the dead. We know that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, even though now for a little while, if necessary, we are grieved by various trials. And so in the meantime, while we await Christ's return and serve him, during our time of exile, we have the kind of confidence and hope that we need to follow his example in the face of whatever opposition we find. Chapter 2, verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He knew in the end his father would sort it all out. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, Let those who suffer according to God's will 
entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's what life in the meantime is supposed to look like. We're called to an alienated engagement with our culture that preserves the distinctiveness of our gospel while not retreating from our calling as neighbors and friends and citizens. Russell Moore again writes, The kind of exiles we are to be is not a bitter, resentful people hearkening back to better days when we had more power and influence. We are instead to be those who know that the culture around us, whatever culture it is, is temporary. We are to pattern our lives not after nostalgia for the past, but hope for the future. We are strangers and exiles on our best days. But we're not orphans and wanderers. Our strangeness is only hopeful if it is freakishly clinging to the strange, strange mission of Christ crucified and risen. Gracious Father, we thank you that we are not orphans and wanderers. That you saw us in our sorriest state and had mercy. And Lord, we confess that that it's that mercy that we want others to know. Lord, we, we confess that there are times when we like being right. And we like people to know that we're right or to think that we're right. And Lord, that's ugly. It's not about being right. It's about you being seen for who you are in your holiness and in your mercy. Lord, may our only desire and motivation be for your glory and for the good that comes from others knowing you. And that means living that way personally and as a church. May we be indeed a people centered on the gospel of Christ. And may we never forget that that is what we have to offer to the world around us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.